Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The 52-year civil war in Colombia between the Marxist rebel group the FARC and the government is the longest-running conflict in the Western Hemisphere. But after years of painstaking negotiations, the conflict is finally coming to an end. There's a ceasefire and a peace deal was signed in September between FARC's leader and the president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos. But the government promised to put the peace deal to a final vote among the people of Colombia in a popular referendum, and lo and behold, when the vote was taken in early October, voters rejected the deal. This was a shock to international observers like myself, and also to many observers inside Colombia. On the line with me to discuss the referendum results, the peace deal, and the implications of this failure to formally end the civil war is James Bargent, a freelance journalist based in Colombia. I caught up with James when he was in Medellin just days after the vote, and he does an excellent job of describing the political climate that led to this result, and he games out certain scenarios for what happens next in this now quite tenuous peace process. This is a great episode, obviously very topical. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives or get in touch with me. There's a little contact form, and I respond to all my emails, so please do feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. You know, I, I do this for you, so if there is an issue that you would like to learn more about or someone that you think I should speak with, let me know. I'm, I'm happy to check it out, happy to uh, oblige. And now here is... Journalist James Bargent. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. There's kind of a central corridor where the no votes obtain most of its um, most of its backing, and then all around the coastal regions and to the south of the country was mostly voting yes. Now the most conflict affected areas, by all means not all, but most of them backed the votes. So places like Choco or Nariño, uh, there was a strong backing for yes. Um, however, this is not all of them. For example, where I am in Antioquia is probably, I think it's produced the most victims of Colombia's conflict, and here the vote was no, quite, by quite a strong, by quite a large margin. Although, again, if you start breaking it down municipality by municipality, then the municipalities that have been worst affected by guerrilla violence actually voted yes. Okay. So what what explains that then? I mean, people with, that were most proximate to the violence are most eager to put it to rest once and for all. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's the message I take from it that the the people that have suffered most and the people that suffer most from the violence in Colombia are rural people. Something like eighty five percent of the victims come from rural areas. 
and they they have voted strongly in favour for this. They're clearly willing to to make the compromises necessary to to bring the conflict to an end. They're the ones that suffer firsthand. Whereas the no vote was strongest in. I mean, not everywhere. A lot of them are severely conflict-afflicted areas, but mostly in ones that haven't suffered as much. So, and that are most importantly currently quite far removed from the conflict. So, if you if you live in a big city in Colombia at the moment, you're unlikely to have to face day-to-day consequences of a conflict. And in most of the big cities, there was a, well, it was either close or there was a. A no vote. I, I like that we can hear the sounds of Medellin in, in the background of our <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah, is that all right? Do you want me to change the No, this is great. This is great. Adds, yeah. adds a nice ambiance, I think, um, <laughs> to, to the conversation. So, okay, so if, if rural voters by and voters that were sort of most proximally affected by the conflict uh, voted in favor of the referendum, what arguments uh, are you hearing from people who voted no, who voted against the referendum, from people who are more removed from the conflict? Yeah. Why did they well, make that stand? Well, there's two two issues that come up more than any others. The first is transitional justice. So as part of the the, the peace agreement, uh, basically there would have been a amnesty for the majority of FARC members who are not guilty of crimes against humanity. Those that are guilty of crimes against humanity, if they immediately and completely confess them, they would have been. Um, they would have gone through a special justice regime, where basically they would have had. I think it was five to eight years of restricted liberties. What exactly that means has never really been made clear, and they would have had to participate in restorative justice schemes worked out with communities that have been victimised. So for a lot of people, this was getting off lightly, and it was just unacceptable for them to not see FARC leaders do prison time. Just from like on, on principle, right? If you commit a crime against humanity, you sure should serve a, a lengthy uh, prison sentence and should not uh, avail yourself or, or have the ability uh, to go through some sort of lighter sentence plus a truth and reconciliation process. Well, that's debatable. Um, because the thing is, what, what you'll see from most of the no campaign, and by no means all, there are a lot of people that, like you say, just are standing firm on the principle of justice. But what you hear most is people talking about the guerrillas and just the guerrillas. Now, the point of the, the truth and reconciliation process and this uh, restorative justice scheme is it would not have just applied to them. It would have also been open to the military, to the police, to the politicians who are you know, guilty of horrendous crimes. And you know, funding and directing a lot of the violence. Um, so it honestly, it makes me question when they're only focused on the one side of that and the guerrillas being punished. Is is this an issue of justice or is this an issue of you know some sort of desire, unwillingness to forgive a party, an actor that they spent their whole lives hating and seeing as the enemy? You know. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so to that end, I mean, how? politically polarized is the the Colombian body politics. I mean, I, I know that one of the leaders of the no campaign is the former uh, president of Colombia, uh, Uribe, who's kind of a right, not kind of, he is, he was like a right wing leader uh, of Colombia who kind of led campaigns against FARC. I mean, were, were his supporters the ones who turned out? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's two points. Well, 
I was about to go off on one about Rebo for a minute there. Um, yes, uh, his supporters make made up the bulk of the no votes. He is not the untouchable, you know, reputation that he had previously when he left office. But he still inspires a great deal of loyalty and backing from a substantial minority of voters. However, I think that the important thing to note is really the reason why this agreement didn't pass wasn't so much the no vote, it was the abstention rate. There was only a 37% turnout. So that means over half the electorate didn't vote at all. And yeah, there were some external reasons for this. There was extreme weather on the Caribbean coast, for example. There's just the general, you know, lack of general apathy around elections. But most of all, I think this reflects a widespread cynicism about this process that has been evident and present and present throughout the entire time. You know, I mean, the thing I hear most from people is like, "This isn't peace." It's like. They, they, they're dressing up in these white shirts, they're shaking hands, they're exchanging silver dove pins, and there's all this pomp and ceremony. But they, they, a lot of people see that as just a kind of cheap political trick. They say, all right, don't, don't tell me that Colombia is going to be at peace after this. Like The influence of organised crime persists. There are other armed groups, there's extreme violence, there's extreme corruption. The, the underlying causes of the conflict, such as poverty, inequality, lack of, lack of um, political access for most people, they, they still remain. So, in, so, I mean, for a lot of people, I mean, the argument against that would be like, yes, sure, but surely this is better than what we have at the moment. But these people, just, they're just disengaged in the process. They, they have no trust and they have no faith in the FARC or the government. And they just see this process as not particularly solving Colombia's problems. And so they're just disengaged for it. And that, that cynicism has kind of metastasized into apathy. It's interesting that the symbolic demonstrations that were greeted with such cynicism uh, that you that you just cited, that the, the signing ceremonies all dressed in white with like Ban Ki-moon, um, the, the UN Secretary General watching on, were um, viewed by me and, and I suspect a lot of other international observers as really like profoundly powerful like moments of finally, you know, uh, putting down your arms after 52 years of civil war, like those headlines really captured my imagination and the, the symbol, the symbolic exchanging of, of doves and, and wearing all white really did capture my attention. And so maybe perhaps I was more of the audience here than, than the people of Colombia. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, I think there's a lot of people feel that because there's, they see that this is, backed by the UN, it's backed by the US, it's backed by international partners around the world, it's received positively in the US media and the like the global media. And they just they can't buy into it in the same way. I mean, fifty two years, like you say, that's you'd think people would just be desperate to end that conflict. But in another sense, that conflict has become normalized. Like a great majority of Colombians now just have literally never experienced peace. And so all they see is these people who they know are responsible for a lot of violence, who have proven time and again to be dishonest, to be not trustworthy, 
and they feel, well, why should we trust them now? And in some ways, I think some for some Colombians, and you know, I'm speculating as a foreigner here, although one that's lived here for some time, but I think it's safer to carry on with what they know, this this cynical, low-intensity conflict that mostly doesn't affect them, rather than to take a gamble and to take a chance on something different and something new and bringing in, it back into society people that they've been taught to hate since they were children. Um, can you describe what was in the peace deal, like the, the major um, elements of the peace deal? And then I'd like to, to talk to you about what comes next after it's done. Yeah, sure. So the, the points on the agenda were rural reform, which is basically plans for investment in the countryside to help rural communities, to bring them services, uh, to bring them commercial opportunities, and to just tackle the the inequality and the poverty in these places that have basically been, I, mean, I was going to say abandoned by the state, but even that's not accurate because really the state was never there to start with. They've just left them to their fate. So that was the first point. Um, there was an agreement on the drug trade. Uh, the principal focus of that was the coca farmers. Now the FARC... Um, I don't want to overstate this. When you say control an estimated 70% of uh, coca cultivations, that doesn't mean they run them, but it means they control the areas and the coca farmers have to go through them, basically, or at the very least pay a tax, if not sell them all the coca base. So the, the agreement was for uh, the FARC to participate in, actively participate in, an eradication and substitution program uh, to to encourage coca farmers to leave coca behind and find legal alternatives. Um, so then there was the political participation, and this we, we didn't get to before. But this was actually the the, the second really controversial uh, point for the votes in the no campaign, because basically it guarantees the FARC a certain number of seats, I think it's five in each, in Congress and in the Senate for the next two electoral periods. And obviously, a lot of people feel that that's the fact. They've brought their way to the table with arms and they, they just find it unpalatable to mm -hmm. see fart leaders playing politicians like get they um, would get guaranteed seats basically yeah, yeah just for the next two electoral mm. terms and then they'd be on their own and we also get you know it does other things like funding for them to uh transform into a democratic party and yeah. the rest but the the biggest sticking point that was was that leaders could stand for elections and that they would have or people commit guilty of crimes against humanity could stand for elections yeah. and that the fart would have a guaranteed participation um then there was the deal, the agreement of victims. Um, and this, you know, this was a broad deal, including all sorts of things to, to do reparations to victims. But I think the most important aspect of this was the transitional justice deal, which I talked about before. Basically, like a truth and reconciliation commission. Yeah, sort of thing. yeah, yeah. It was going to be a truth and reconciliation commission, and everyone that you know fully and openly. Uh, completes it would have avoided prison. They would still would have had some, you know, restricted liberties and this restorative justice schemes, but they wouldn't have gone to prison. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then, and then, yeah, the last 
aspects of the agreement were really about demobilization and integration back into civilian life. So basically what was going to happen with all the demobilizing fighters. And this is something the UN, I know, is going to have uh, play, play a big role in, because the UN does this all around the world. It's sort of a very technical process, what they call DDR, dis- demobilization um, uh, and uh, reintegration, and basically like laying down your arms in a certain, certain process. And that, that was critical, the involvement of the UN, because originally like one of the FARC's red lines is they would not hand over their arms to the government because that would be seen as a surrender. You know, they is one of the things they've absolutely been certain they cannot be seen to be doing during this process is being for this to be seen as a surrender. It has to be a negotiation. So originally they were like, no, we're not, you're not having our arms until this entire peace process has been implemented and we're satisfied with it. And then the compromise reached was for the the UN to to step mm-hmm. in and as an independent third party and receive their arms, which is something I should, as I mentioned earlier, the UN does all around the world as part of peace processes. It kind of d- knows how to how to do this. Um, but my understanding is is that this is just not going to happen now, right? I mean, that this to me seems like one of the more critical elements of the peace process, which is you know FARC laying down their arms, and and now it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it was it was due to start immediately, basically as soon as the. Uh, the peace accord was agreed on. Um, obviously, no, it's not been agreed on. The whole process is frozen, and no one really knows what's coming next. Well, yeah, so, so that was going to be my question. I mean, so uh, presumably, I mean, the, the leaders of FARC and, and the government uh, of, of Colombia have a lot of equity you know, invested in this peace process, that they're not going to blow it up all right now because of this failed referendum. Um, so what, I guess, what do you see as, as happening next? I mean, what's already happening? We, we're, we're speaking a few days now after the failed referendum. Like, what are supporters of the peace process doing right now on both sides? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what we've got at the moment is basically this process is no longer between two actors. Now we have the government, we have the FARC, and we have the no campaign led by former President Alvaro Uribe. So, yeah, what's going on at the moment is the, the government and the no campaign have um, formed delegations that are going to meet with each other and discuss the next steps. Um, the government say Santos has said he will continue fighting for this peace process until the last day of his mandate. Uh, the FARC have come out and they've said they remain committed to peace and to change through words, not arms, that the ceasefire with the army will remain in place indefinitely. However, they also made a statement yesterday uh, reaffirming their commitment to the peace accord as it stands. And they even said, this was the leader, Timo Leon Jimenez, or Timochenko, and he said, this referendum result has no legal standing. It only has political standing, which is probably quite an ominous comment. Um, and then he called for you know popular mobilizations, but again, in defense not of the process, but of the agreement as it stands. So quite how the, and basically the no campaigns demands, which are for the FARC leaders to do prison time and for them not to be allowed to participate in politics, then the major ones, 
you know, this, this is red line stuff for the Fox. So uh, it's, it's difficult to see how the government, which now has to basically mediate between the two other sides, is going to be able to bridge this gap between the no campaign and the FARC. Because it's worth pointing out, you know, that this agreement took years and years of negotiating, like four years of, of formal negotiation to come to this agreement. And now, uh, what, they're, they're going to start over? Yeah, I mean, what the, the no campaign is saying is that they want to rene- renegotiate certain aspects of it, not the whole deal. Um, however, the FARC and the government before the election said this isn't an option. Like This is the deal as it stands, as it is. There will be no re- renegotiation. So either the government's got to backtrack or they've got to find a way around it or, they, or the whole process looks like it's, it's going to yeah, not end well. Um, I guess finally, I mean, it, to me it seems, as you mentioned earlier, the um – uh, the the ceasefire is holding. I mean, the prospects of a resumption of violence at this point seem low. Is is that fair? I think the the thing we have to watch now is what's going to happen to the FARC as an organization. Now, there was already a really high risk of dissident factions joining other armed groups or forming their own organizations either to continue the revolutionary struggle or just to criminalize and to control the illegal economies the FARC runs. Now, with this decision, and after the FARC has gone all out public, has asked for forgiveness for its crimes, it's called its 10th, they called their their 10th Congress a few weeks before to basically ratify the whole process and begin the process of transforming into a democratic movement. For all this to happen and then the Colombian people to say no, I think there's going to be a lot of people in within the ranks of the FARC at the moment who will be, you know, they'll be looking at their guns again and they'll be thinking, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to risk everything for some process brokered by these old men in Havana and the government I don't trust. And now we've got to deal with our mortal enemies and Alvaro Uribe. So I think the the biggest danger is not from an immediate resumption of hostilities between the FARC and the army, but it's whether the FARC can keep it together, can maintain cohesion as an organization committed to the peace process. And that's going to be extremely hard, especially as part of the idea of them like beginning to demobilize was that they'd also leave behind their criminal economies. But if they're frozen in this limbo, where no one really knows what happens, then of course they're going to return to those economies because they need to fund themselves one way or another. No matter what's going to happen, they're going to need to fund themselves. So they're going to return to these criminal economies. Then there's an increasingly likely probability of uh, distant factions breaking off or joining other armed groups Mm -hmm. or disobeying orders. And it's hard to see how the FARC leadership can maintain like unity around this peace process mm-hmm. after this vote. And that that's not, not an uncommon dynamic when these peace processes happen. You look at something like the IRA, uh, you know, joining the Good Friday Agreement, and then you had like the real IRA spinoff, uh, you know, that, and, and the same thing with, with the, the PLO and, and, uh, you know, the, the Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigade spinoff. You know, you have these kinds, this is like a common feature of these kinds of peace processes. 
Absolutely, and it's already happened. The, the FARC's first front declared um, well in advance of the, the referendum that they didn't agree with the peace process and that they were going it alone. Mm-hmm. So we've already seen it happen. Uh, information I have from the, some of the regions I work in is that a lot of FARC dissidents have just started to join the ELN, which is the, the smaller guerrilla group. Um, I've heard places uh, people that, from people who are extorted by the FARC that the FARC have come round and said just because you're reading in the news that we stopped extorting, don't believe it, your payments are due as always. So it was already happening and it was all but inevitable that a significant minority of the FARC would would, uh, not demobilise and would criminalise or break away. But I think now it's, yeah, the situation is much worse. It's going to be much harder for the FARC to keep it together, to convince the rank and file that this is in their best interest. They've just seen the country turn their back on them. It's it's hard to hard to sell this message that of reconciliation and reintegration into civilian life when when you've just seen that, you know. Uh, well, James, thank you so much for your time and for your analysis and for speaking with me uh, again. This is fascinating, and uh, I appreciate you helping break it down for me. Yeah, no problem at all. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was helpful and interesting and really, I think, put in context this big news that shocked me uh, earlier this week. As I mentioned at the outset, please do visit globaldispatchespodcast.com if you want to get in touch with me. I really do love hearing from you. And while you're there, you can also download our free mobile app. Uh, For those of you who are new to the podcast, we do have this free mobile app. It's probably the easiest way to listen to all episodes, past, present, and future. Of course, if uh, you're listening on iTunes, you can just keep on keep it on. All right, we'll see you later. Bye.